Matthew chapter 16 today, verses 21 through 28. This chapter's taken us a lot longer than I thought it was going to. I really thought we were going to do this one in one Sunday and not so. So finishing it today, Lord willing, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. So welcome you again to Calvary Chapel. Those that are watching online, welcome. Two questions. What did Jesus come to do and... What is our commitment to him to look like? What did he come to do? What is our commitment to him to look like? We're going to answer those two questions in this passage today. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then he said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works." Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, for your divine influence upon our hearts, for your grace working on us, in us, and through us. We thank you, Father, for your word and for the kindness of giving it to us. Lord, your words are the words of life, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you, Father, that as we turn to the word today, we can learn more about you, the God of the word. So, Lord, that is our prayer today, that you would show us yourself, that you would show us our Savior, that you would show us our help in the Holy Spirit, and would you show us ourselves. And we ask that the book would be living and active to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Very simple outline today, two parts. It's the correct commission and the correct commitment. Verses 21 through 23, the correct commission. 24 through 28, the correct commitment. Jesus' commission was to die on the cross in the place of sinners. As his disciples, our commitment to him must possess the same willingness to sacrifice all. And that's what we're going to see here. That's kind of this message in a nutshell, those two things. The correct commission, verse 21, Jesus explains his commission Plainly, you know what we mean by commission? What was he commissioned to do? Uh, he's been given a job to do. And so he states in verse 21, his 
commission plainly. But it starts with the words, from that time. Now, that time is about 29 AD, roughly. Jesus, having just been approached by the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and you remember they were saying, uh, show us a sign. He says, you'll get the sign of Jonah and like it, and uh, you won't get any other signs uh, other than that. And um, they were trying to test him, and they were messing with him, the religious authorities. Jesus then, after that, he takes his disciples away for a getaway to Caesarea Philippi. In this city, in this point known for paganism and idolatry, Jesus gives the pop quiz, you remember? Who do men say that I am? Uh, some say John the Baptist, and prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, so on. Then he turns it to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? A far more important question. Peter publishes the news that God placed into his heart, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you got it right, Peter. On this boulder of truth, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't stand against it. From that time. Now, from this time forward, Jesus mainly will focus on his passion. Has anybody ever heard that term? You've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ? If you've never seen that movie, I mean, I commend it to you. There might be discrepancies of like, oh, did Mel Gibson get it right? Did he do this and that? Just even so, I mean, you know, check it out. I think it's worth checking out, especially around this time of year. It could be like a good thing to do, you know, dads with your families. You could sit down and say, uh, let's do this every year. You know, don't make it a religious have-to thing, you know, or something like that. But it's just kind of an interesting thing to see the passion of the Christ. What does that mean? Well, passion comes from a Latin word, pati, P-A-T-I, which means to suffer. So it's a term used to refer to the events of Jesus' life from the prayer in the garden all the way to the cross. This is known as the Passion of the Christ. They call it Passion Week in some denominations, you know, uh, you know uh, Palm Sunday, all of this different, these different events, Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, they call it the Passion Week. From this point on, Jesus will now speak primarily about his passion, about this last you know, week or so of his life. And it says that he tells them he's going to go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Jesus is telling his disciples that the religious establishment is going to do this to me. That's kind of a, just, you let that sink in for a second. That's kind of odd, right? Like, here's God in the flesh, but yet the so-called representatives of God are going to cause him to suffer. And it's interesting that people can get so far away from the heart of God, but yet still be in positions where they're representing God. says that he will be killed, referring to his crucifixion. He's going to endure excruciating pain. In fact, the word crucifixion, um, it's got the idea of excruciating, crucify, excruciate. It's the same sort of etymology. And he goes on to say in verse 21 there that he'll be raised on the third day. This is referring to the resurrection. He will come out of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. 
Up until now, the disciples had only heard about the crucifixion and the resurrection really in cryptic sort of terms. If you look back and you look at the other gospels, Jesus has only kind of referred to these things. Well, like the sign of Jonah, that's one. He didn't say plainly what was going to happen. Close. But now Jesus speaks plainly in plain terms. And I just bring that up because I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. I want you to start thinking about, you've been following this guy, watching him, seeing his teaching, hearing the things that he's doing. You're looking to him to be a political sort of savior. He's going to take this oppressive Roman government and he's going to trample them under his feet. And all the Jews, God's people are going to rule and reign. There'll be no pain. All the things that the Bible says that are coming in the millennial kingdom, they think that that's going to happen now. And they're looking forward to it. And they're looking at Jesus. He's the one. And then he turns to them and says, no, actually, I'm going to die. And, and they must be a little bit conflicted about this. What Jesus said that he would be killed in verse 21 there, it went against their ideas and expectations of the Messiah. In other words, what Jesus says his commission is totally goes against the idea of what people think <laughs> Jesus should be. Now, this same sort of thing happens today, right? People actually start getting into the Bible and they start studying and they start figuring out what Christianity is really about. And sometimes it really challenges what they thought Jesus was all about, right? And that's definitely the case. People start getting into the word. They start discovering Christ and what he came to do and what he expects of you and me. And and sometimes it's a different thing than what we've expected. They'd grown up in this sort of expectation. They'd grown up... Um, the traditions of the elders. Their parents had been teaching them about the Messiah, but here's the Messiah saying something that totally challenges what they think about him, not what they expected to hear. In fact, this is so far out of Peter's understanding that just look what he does next, verse 22. Then Peter took him aside, that's Jesus, and he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, I just want to point out something just on the outset of this. Anytime you tell the Lord, far be it from you, that's <laughs> funny, right? <laughs> you got to love Peter. You got to love this guy. Oh, oh, no. It's just, just, Jesus. <laughs> far be it from you, man. It's not going to happen. Now, I want to point this out. Taking him aside was commendable of Peter to do, wasn't it? He didn't go bust him out in front of the whole group. Peter took this leader or this other, you know, person in his circle, and what he did was he took him aside to say something to him. And I think that that's commendable on Peter's part. Notice this other word there, began, in verse 22. Peter began to rebuke him. It's like, I got a whole bunch more for you, Jesus. I've just been waiting. You know, I got I to gotta tell you how you should be running the kingdom here. This is not what I had in mind, uh, you know, when it came to following you. I didn't think following you was going to be like this. So let me tell you, Jesus, here's how you should adjust the program uh, to suit me. But it says he began to rebuke him. So it's like Jesus cut him off before he was able to put both feet in his mouth, you know. Thankfully, he does that to me sometimes, too says that he rebuked him, and that word rebuke, it's kind of a churchy word. If you've never heard the word rebuke before, you might, you know, not know what it means. But let me give you a definition. It means to express strong disapproval of someone or to warn them in order to prevent an action from taking place. 
He's expressing strong disapproval in what Jesus says Jesus' plan is. Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised on the third day. Peter says, no, 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 no. No, that doesn't happen to the Messiah. Uh, the Messiah, you're supposed to destroy our enemies. They're not supposed to destroy you. Um, Peter rejected that which contradicted his hopes and ambitions of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, these Jews, this is something you have to understand when you're reading through the Gospels. You have to understand the, the setting. They did not expect the Messiah to come and suffer, right? They, they read... Now, let's be clear. In the Old Testament, there are a lot of passages about the Messiah that talk about him ruling and reigning. But there are also passages that talk about him suffering, now, this was a bizarre thing to the Jews. In fact, some of the Jews, some schools of Judaism said that there must be two messiahs because they don't know what to do with Isaiah chapter 53. They just don't know what to do with it. So they say there's got to be the suffering messiah and there's got to be the ruling and reigning messiah. But we know from reading the scriptures that they're both in one. They just don't understand this whole church age, what Jesus came to do, what his commission was the first time. They don't understand that the Messiah came to suffer and die for sinners the first time and that he will come back at the end of the church age and rule and reign from Jerusalem. It's in the book of Zechariah. He'll touch his feet down the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two. All people will come from everywhere and Jesus will be the ruler of all. And we just studied this stuff on Sunday evening, but they just did not get it. And their expectation of Jesus was he's going to rule and reign now. And he says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, it can't be. Can't be. Jesus, you don't fit my agenda. I want to follow somebody that, you know, here, here's the guy I want to follow, Jesus. Let me, can I just give you a list? I'll email it to you. Is that cool? Ever done that? Jesus doesn't fit your agenda, so then you, you're like, I don't know. I just got to reject this stuff that he's, you know. Look at Jesus' response to this whole thing, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, a scandalon. Has anybody ever heard that word? It's the Greek word. That's where we get our English word scandalize from. A scandalon, an offense, is a stumbling block. Remember, Peter called, or Jesus called Peter a little rock? This is a different kind of rock. <laughs> this is the kind of rock you trip over. This is like going up to a person that's walking and putting something in front of their path and causing them to trip over it, you know? I don't know who does that. Uh, that's a pretty mean thing to do to somebody, but people probably do it. But that's what a stumbling block is. It's when you or somebody puts something in front of somebody else that causes them to get tripped up and tripped up in their calling to, you know, what the Lord's called them to do. Right? And that's exactly what Peter is you know, doing here. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're an offense to me. These are incredibly harsh words. Now, Jesus, notice he's speaking directly to Satan. Now, this is kind of bizarre. You remember in the last time when Jesus, when Peter revealed, um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and Jesus said, Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And so Peter just spoke in this word from the Lord just like that. Well, here he speaks a word from the devil, just like that. And Jesus calls him straight out. He looks right in his face and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now his throat, you ever had that where you're like, 
and you want to cry a little bit? <laughs> you know, can you imagine? He went from the divinely inspired confessor to the satanically motivated stumbler within like a few verses. His heart like an anchor in the sea, no doubt. Peter was well-meaning in what he was doing, right? I'm sure, I'm sure he was like, Jesus, Jesus, no, no, no. In fact, if you read Young's literal translation or if you read Wiest's or if you read some of the original Greek, the, the, the language here goes, no, Lord, have mercy. No, Lord, be kind to yourself is Young's literal translation, I believe. It's be kind to yourself, don't talk about this death stuff and this blood stuff and this suffering stuff. That does not make sense for the Messiah. Now, do you remember months ago in our study when Jesus was, after his baptism, who remembers what happened immediately after Jesus' baptism? Go ahead and yell it out. Out in the wilderness. Who took him out in the wilderness, by the way? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness and Jesus fasted for 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, then what happened? Who came to him? Satan came and tempted him. Exactly. And he tempted him. What essentially did he tempt him to do? What was the, the root of the temptation? Bypass the cross. Jesus, you can have all this kingdom that's coming to you, but why don't you just bow down and worship me and you can skip this whole suffering business and all this cross business. You can just skip all that. Now, it's kind of interesting to notice that Satan's temptation in the wilderness is the same sort of thing that's going on here. Satan tempts Jesus directly in the wilderness. Here, Satan is using a well-meaning Christian to tempt Jesus to circumvent the cross, to go around it. No, the Messiah doesn't, doesn't do this. The Messiah conquers and rules and reigns. Just go ahead and conquer, rule, and reign. Remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I had to withdraw from people because they were going to go ahead and just put me up as a leader. The temptation is, Jesus, you don't have to bother with all this suffering stuff. And Jesus recognizes that temptation and he says, get by me, Satan. He says, you're an offense to me. You're getting in the way of what God's called me to do. And the problem is because you're thinking man's thoughts. You're, you're not thinking through a godly lens. You're thinking man's thoughts, right? Now, the very will of God for his son was the cross, right? Wasn't it? Was the cross an accident? Did like stuff just kind of go wrong and then Jesus got out of control? Was the cross an accident? No. Is the cross something that could have been avoided? Could it have been avoided? No. How do we know that? In the Garden of Gethsemane, I'll give you a clue. Jesus prays three times and he says, what? He says, if there's any other way yeah, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, meaning the crucifixion. He's, he's, Jesus is praying. He's got drops of sweat coming out that are actually blood. He's straining. He's agonizing. And he's saying, if there's any other way, let this whole cross thing pass from me. And you know what the response from God the Father was? There's no other way. This is the way that man's salvation comes. This is it. And it's not an accident. 
And Peter here is a stumbling block to the whole thing because he's being well-meaning. Oh, I don't want to see him get hurt. I love him. I care about him. So I want to try to remove all suffering from his life. The cross was no accident. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. The crucifixion was the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, is what that verse says. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your, capital Y, your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The cross was God's purpose to be done. John chapter 12, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus himself said, this is the purpose of why I came. Isaiah chapter 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Isn't that something? That's about God the Father. It's God the Father speaking about God the Son through the prophet Isaiah. And it says this, Yet it pleased the Lord, God the Father, to bruise him, Jesus. He has put him to grief. He God the Father has put Jesus to grief. This is mind-boggling. This is the plan of God. The plan of God the Father was to send God the Son, and they both were willing with this plan. This Father was willing to see his Son get sacrificed because of his love for the world. It was the only way that it could happen. And the Son was pleased to submit to it. Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you think I could call legions and legions of angels down here? And I don't, he said to Pilate, he goes, if my kingdom was of this kingdom, we'd fight. We don't fight like that. Uh, my kingdom's of another realm altogether. And Jesus willingly, every single step that he took to Calvary, to Golgotha that day, every single step was willing. And it was the plan of God. And it does not make sense to Peter here. Because it doesn't make sense to see people that you love and care about suffer. It doesn't make sense that God would condescend, that God would die for his people. You know, when, when you read a hero story, you know, of a, of a ruler, of a dominator, of a leader, he comes in and he rules and he dominates people. But God, he comes and he dies for people, right? This is a whole different story. It doesn't make sense to human logic. And Peter doesn't understand. Peter was taking on the role of the adversary by doing what Satan does, tempting Jesus to take action that was directly contrary to God's will for his life. He goes on and says, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Peter was not thinking about God's interests, but man's interests. He allowed his mind to get off of God and back to the way that he used to think before knowing Jesus. And that is a huge problem for Christians. 
So Jesus explains his passion. Peter says, no way. I want to point out some things that we can learn from this first point. Um, Here's the first one. A suffering, sacrificing God does not make logical sense to man. It doesn't make sense uh, to human logic. Rulers typically come. They dominate their people. Jesus came. He suffered for and died for his people. Number two, We must be very careful, this is a huge one, to take Jesus as he is, not as we think he should be. Many people attempt to rope Jesus in to their agendas. Brings terrible consequences, okay? People try to rope Jesus into their political party. Terrible consequences. Do a study of history. Look at what happened with the religious right. Look at what happened with, you know, I'm not going to talk about it too much. And you'll thank me. That's good. I'm maturing. (laughs) A little bit. Don't rope Jesus. Don't put Jesus in bed with politics. The Roman Empire did that. Terrible consequences for the church. We're still suffering from them today because People tried to rope Jesus into their agenda. Crusades. Mental health. People have tried to rope Jesus into their mental health agenda. Oh, you've got to love yourself before you can love your neighbor. That's heresy. (laughs) It's heresy. You love yourself so much. That's why you're miserable. That's because all you think about is yourself. And you need to stop doing that and think about God. And you need to love your neighbor. And the Bible assumes you already love yourself because you already do love yourself. If you didn't love yourself, you wouldn't be thinking about yourself all the time. I hate myself. No, you're thinking about yourself. I don't care whether you're thinking you're great or whether you're thinking you're bad. You're still thinking about you. (laughs) Come on. Best news I ever received in my life. Help me get free. Now, listen, people try to rope Jesus into their mental health agenda. And they try to rope Jesus into their worldview agenda. Friends, don't take Jesus and try to rope him into your agenda. It's blasphemy. It's absolutely blasphemy. Jesus came to suffer and die and to resurrect because we need a savior. And he loved us at the cross. And that's what love is. And we must take him as he is. We must take him as he is. And he's, he needs to shape everything. He's above every kingdom. He's above everything. He's above all. And we need to let him be there. We need to allow that and stop pulling him down into our man-made ideas about things. Number three, <clears throat> watch out for people giving worldly advice, okay? Now, well-meaning people, no matter how concerned and loving they seem, if they come to you and they give advice that is contrary to the will of God, you should avoid that. It happens all the time. Maybe you've got an an in-law, you know, that your marriage is going through a tough season as a Christian. Maybe that in-law is saying, you know, maybe you're just not in love with them anymore. Maybe, maybe, you know, it's time for you to just think about you for a little while. You know, maybe, maybe it's time for you to treat yourself instead of cheat yourself, you know. And maybe what you need to do is just kind of get free from this relationship that you're in because life's too short. Hey, well-meaning advice, right? They're, they're trying to do the right thing based on worldly information. That's what the world says. You fall out of love with somebody, you just stop being married to them. It's not what the Bible says, you know. I mean, the Bible, you know, uh, says that there's a higher standard for marriage. And, and, and you're not going to probably get that at the gossipy water cooler, you know what I mean? And so you've got to watch out for people giving you advice, you know? 
Um, every Christian, you start walking with the Lord, one of the first things you should do is scan the people in your life that influence you and their influence upon you. You should really do that, you know. Maybe your family has a bad influence on you, you know. Maybe they're not pointing you towards the cross. Maybe they're not pointing you towards a life of sacrifice and suffering and holiness and purity for Jesus' sake. Then you have to take that and you have to understand that and see that. I'm not saying you've got to cut these people off completely. That's not at all what I'm saying. Cults do that. We're not doing that. But we do need to be smart enough to say, this person in my life has a worldly influence, and I need to be careful of that. Now, we also get well-meaning advice, you know, what we should do with our lives. Why do you keep doing that stuff? Looks like a whole bunch of life of suffering. I mean, you know, every Sunday you could be doing something different, you know? I mean, it's the only day that I have to get laundry done. I mean, what about you? When do you do your chores? But you take Sunday and you give it all to this study in this book from 2000 years ago. I mean, I see that you take your money and you sponsor kids, you know, in Africa and you do stuff like that. Why do you do that? I mean, you could just be doing other things, right? You know, if you want to truly be happy in life, what you need to do is put yourself first. You need to love yourself. Put yourself first on top of it. Be careful. Now, so you got to watch out for people giving this worldly advice because when it's circumventing the cross life that Jesus has called us all to, it's the advice of the devil. Now, here's another thing, okay? Let me just expand upon this a little bit. God help us to never be this stumbling block to somebody else. God help me to never give my wife satanic advice. God help me to never come up here and give satanic advice to somebody. You know, God put a watch over our mouth, put, put a guard over our lips. May we be so in tune with the spirit of God that, that the words that come out of our mouth point people to Jesus, not towards any, you know. And we can get, we can get this whole, like, I love you thing, and I have feelings, and I, don't, I just want to see the best for you. That's what Peter was doing with Jesus. We need to be careful of that. As Peter blunders here, now it seems like the right time for Jesus to lay out the alphabet of discipleship, the bedrock basics of being a follower. And that's what he does. Four things, the correct commitment. Number two. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone comes, desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Here, now, it's, it seems like the right time. Peter's like, no, this whole cross thing doesn't make sense. And so now Jesus is going to come and say, actually, um, why don't I explain to you what it really means to be my follower? Some observations we should take into consideration. They've already been following Jesus for a while. These are people that have given their life. These are people that, you know, as far as they know, have been close with him and and. Um, so they're familiar with him and he comes to them now after he's revealed his destiny, what it looks like to fulfill the will of God, the father. And he says, if anyone desires to come after me. Now there are four things. I used to think there were three in here, but there are four things in here. Um, that Jesus lays out as a qualification, as qualifications for being his disciple. I have to tell you, as a pastor who loves you, like I love you guys. I think about you guys all the time. Trust me. I ask my wife. You know, I love you guys. And so part of that love is, is sometimes I want to just, yeah, Jesus said these things and, you know, and 
I think it's a good thing of a faithful expositor. We just let the book just talk for itself. And sometimes it's kind of hard to say things to you, especially you young people, you know, like I want you to be interested in Jesus. He's the best thing ever. You know, he's the best person ever. Following Jesus Christ is the best thing will ever happen. You won't feel empty inside. You'll feel like you've got purpose and meaning. He's the greatest. The more you get to know him, you say, oh my gosh, he's so great. He's so wonderful. And what he lays out here, though, the qualifications for being his disciple. And so we'll let, him, we'll let Jesus speak for himself. Um, there are four things in here. The first one is desire. If anyone desires to come after me. This is very important. That word desire, you may even circle that in your Bible. If you like to circle things in your Bible, you may, you may circle that word there. Following Jesus Christ is an act of the will. It's an act of your will. John 5.40, when Jesus was, you know, lamenting over the fact that his people wouldn't come to him, the Jews, he says, but you are not willing to come to me. He lets people reject him. Isn't that a good thing, though, by the way, in a love relationship, if somebody can reject you and say no? Isn't that good? Married people, isn't that a good thing, wives, that your husband allows you to say no? Isn't that a good thing? My wife's like, yeah, he's got a hard time with that. I'm like, come on, come on, come on. Just do it. You don't mean no. Come on. You know? But I'm telling you, it's a good thing, husbands, when you respect when your wife says no. Right? It's a good thing. Vice versa. Wives do the same thing. You know, I mean, husbands and wives do that together. My point is, is it's a good thing. Genuine love must contain the ability to reject that love. Think about it. Unless you're talking about the Stockholm Syndrome. Anybody know what that is? Stockholm, Sweden, there was a bank robbery. These bank robbers took a bunch of hostages. Pretty soon the hostages start falling in love with the bank robbers. (laughs) Happiness and slavery, as Trent Reznor called it. Now, Jesus gives freedom to reject him. And so following him must be an act of the will. Matthew 10, 38, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who doesn't take it, you need to take it. That's an act of the will. Luke 14, 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't choose as an act of the will to give their life to Jesus, they can't be his disciple. Nobody can do it for you. Parents, you have a responsibility, I believe, and I'm going to share my opinion with you um, a little bit. It's not my opinion that you have a responsibility to disciple your children. The Bible says you need to raise your kids up. That's, we need to teach them the truth. Why would we not? I mean, YouTube's teaching them death. Why wouldn't we teach them life? I mean, it doesn't, you know, that's not my opinion. My opinion is, you know, for a certain age, you know, I, if it was me, I'd force my kids to go to church. I wouldn't care what they said. You're a kid. You live in my house until you pay the rent, until you, you're not free. You're my kid, you know, you're going to church. And I would trust that the seeds that were getting planted in them would just flourish and all that stuff. And I would trust that. But once they became adults and, you know, could start really thinking through these things, you know, from a vantage point of not like, I just want to spend time on my tablet, then it, then it would change. But this is the message for you younger people in here today. Jesus is telling you and everybody else that your parents can't make you a follower of Jesus. 
They just, they can't do it. They can do their best and God bless them for doing the best. You parents that have your kids in here today, God bless you. And and I'm sure God is thrilled with the fact that you just got here. I'm sure it's a pain in the butt trying to round people up sometimes and, and all that. I'm sure God's thrilled that your kids are here. Okay. And so that's commendable. But you young people, listen to me. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ unless you choose in the act of your will to do it. Okay. Now, so that's the first qualification for discipleship. There has to be a desire. That word in verse 24 tells us that following Jesus must be a personal choice of the will. Now, number two, or this is the second requirement in here. It says, let him deny himself. Notice that there. In my Bible, I kind of have little numbers above. Number one above desires, number two above uh, let him deny himself, number three, so on. Let him deny himself. To be Jesus' follower, disciples must practice self-denial. It's a spiritual discipline of self-denial. This is, what does this mean? It means to reject the natural human inclination towards selfishness. It means to reject that natural tendency that every one of us is born with to be selfish, to be self-centered. Every one of us in this room is born with the tendency to be selfish. But the call to follow Jesus is a intelligent, willful decision to not be dominated by that. Now, it's unlikely that we'll ever completely get rid of that in this life, you know? But the call to follow Jesus is a deliberate, intentional, intellectual, you know, commitment of the will to not give in to self-centeredness. Now, going on, it's to be willing to deny yourself anything that gets in the way of a life of holiness unto the Lord. You remember Paul? He said, I count all earthly gains as loss. The purpose of self-denial, counting as loss all earthly gains, is to become more like Jesus. Because you want to. It goes back to desire. Do you want to become like Jesus? Do you want to be his follower? Okay, the qualification is self-denial. It's kind of like this. If my niece wants to go swimming at the YMCA, she has to put on the bathing suit. You know, there's a qualification for you. That's a dumb illustration. <laughs> Just came in my mind right now. There's qualifications. If you want to follow, this is what Jesus is saying is involved with following him the correct way. You say, well, I don't know. This doesn't fit my agenda. Oh, oh well, don't let me uh, remind you of what happened to Peter. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't work you know, well to try to redefine the terms. Denying self involves putting to death the dominance of body and its earthly desires. The dominance of the body and its earthly desires. That's what self-denial is. Galatians 5.24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus is at the center of life now, not me. 
First Peter chapter four, verses one through two says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live like life the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Have this mind in yourself that suffering to put a death to the dominance of bodily desires, uh, ceasing from sin, that you may no longer live based on your appetites and passions and lusts because you want to live for God. You want to be like Jesus. Say, well, what's an example of this? I mean, Jesus said, is there any other way? No, there's no other way. And he fulfilled the will of the Father even at a great cost to himself. And that's, that's what he's calling us to do is to be like him in this. Now, I do want to remind us that this is incredibly difficult, okay? Because the Apostle Paul, I think you remember, it's probably some of your favorite chapters in the whole Bible, Romans 6, 7, and 8. Um, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, you know, I'm going to paraphrase. He says, you know, the things that I try to do, that I desire to do, I don't do those things. But the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. It's a wicked man that I am. Who will deliver me from this wretched body of flesh? Jesus will, eventually. But until then, now the flesh struggles against the spirit so you don't do the things that you want to do. Galatians, right? You're in this battle now. See, when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God came inside of you and he made you a new spiritual being. And now this life of Christ is living inside of you and it's warring against this old dead sin nature. But the old dead sin nature is no longer dominant, but it's not giving up easily. It's very manipulative. It's a nag, <laughs> right? But praise be to God that one day we'll be delivered from all of this. We will be. But now this life in the flesh is a life of putting to death those, the dominance of those desires over our lives. You might say, I'm just, I can't get free from these sins in my life. Well, good news. You already are free from these sins in your life. Ultimately, spiritually, they've been severed like a scalpel cutting off some, you know, you know, wart that you don't want anymore, right? That old dead flesh nature is no longer dominant because of Christ in me, the hope of glory, right? But it doesn't want to give up easily. So now I have this choice. If I feed the spirit, the spirit gets strengthened. But if I feed the flesh, you might say, I'm having a real hard time with flesh. What are you feeding? I'm not trying to be harsh, but it's like if you're, if you're dominated by sin and flesh, it's because you're, 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 putting, you're feeding the flesh more than you're feeding the spirit. It's simple. God won't be mocked. That which a man reap or sow, that which he will reap, uh, you know. And so you have to give yourself grace. You can't expect that you're going to be perfect in this life of denying self, putting self to death. You can't expect that. And when you fail and when you mess up, you don't condemn yourself and you don't beat yourself. You read Romans chapter 7 and you say, you know what? Probably the greatest missionary that ever lived deals with the same things that I deal with. There is no temptation that is overtaking you that's not common to man, but God is faithful and he will give you the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's a daily struggle for me. I am such a flesh monster. You should have seen me before Christ as a monster. How does this look in real life? Putting Jesus' interest above your own. Um, 
some real practical things, you know, living modestly, you know, not indulging every single thing, you know, not just every time I've got a whim, I've got to put entertainment in front of my face, you know, stuff like that. It's just, it's living modestly. It's not giving, it's not allowing your flesh just to be the boss, you know, your appetites, you know, spending time in the word, getting to know God. I can deny myself. I could say, look, I just got off of work and all I want to do is veg out. I could deny myself and I could say, but it's probably more beneficial if I sit down with my family and read the Bible with them a little bit. You know, so I could probably die to self a little bit for the cause of Christ because that's what Jesus wants for my family. And I could probably put my own desires just to go veg out aside for the cause of Christ, right? Even though I want to get involved with this conversation, it's about two people that aren't here and it's kind of sinful and gossipy. So why don't I just deny myself and be like Christ? You know, we could go on and make lists of how this plays out everywhere. Jesus needs to be the center. That's what he's saying. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's the next thing. Now, these guys, this is kind of an elusive statement to us Christians in 2022 say, um, you know, what does it mean to uh, take up your cross? And, and it's kind of a puzzling thing to us. In these days, it wouldn't have been puzzling at all. When Rome was going to have somebody put to death, they used crucifixion um, really as like a marketing campaign. You know, they would sometimes even just take bodies that were already dead and hang them up on crosses. Just so when you went down the road and you saw, you know, like you see billboards here, T-Mobile covering more of Mason City than anybody. Uh, Rather, you'd see dead corpses with birds picking organs out of them and plucking eyeballs out and intestines falling out on the ground. And you would say, wow, don't mess with Rome, right? Now, when Jesus said you need to take up your cross, When you were going to be put to death, you were called to carry the cross piece of the cross through town and they paraded you through there. And it was a just don't mess with Rome uh, message. And Jesus says, hey, disciples, I'm going to the cross in Jerusalem, suffer and die. You need to pick up your cross. They all would have been like, wow. What he's doing is he's saying following him even to the death. That's, That's exactly what Jesus is getting at. There are some mis... That word that I just can't get a hold of right now. Misinterpretations of what it is to bear a cross. Some people will say something like, oh, girlfriend, I got to tell you, man, my kids are just out of control, but it's my cross I got to bear. That's not your cross. That's not your cross. Um, Petty annoyances are not crosses. Like Squidward would be like SpongeBob. That's my cross I have to bear. (laughs) You know, are we watching SpongeBob here? Jeez. That's not, uh, you know, that's not a cross to bear. It's a sponge to bear. It's terrible. (laughs) Crucifixion was the worst kind of punishment known at that time, hence the phrase to take the cross signifies voluntary readiness to suffer the utmost in this world for Christ's sake. They are beginning to understand this is not simply being willing to endure some minor discomfort, but Jesus says you need to bear a cross. This is a word for the American church today. 
boy, oh boy, I'm not willing to endure the air conditioner being broken, uh, let alone persecution, you know. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If anyone desires to follow after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. Luke adds daily to take up his cross. You remember that? Those things that stand out in the different gospels, they stick in your mind, don't they? Luke adds daily. Why why do you think he adds daily? I mean, I got to wake up and remind myself a lot of times that, look, I need, to, I need to take up the cross. I need to put Jesus' agenda for my life above everything else, right? Not because I'm trying to earn my way into heaven. No, but because Jesus is the greatest. He's God. And he says, if you want to follow me, this is how you do it. And this is going to bring abundant life. And this is going to bring all kinds of blessing into your life. And this is the life that you were meant to live. You were created to live this life, Right? And you say, oh, praise God, hallelujah, because all these other lives I tried to live, just nothing, empty, right? But this is the life that you were called to live, and i got to remind myself, it's time to die to self. You're about to be done brushing your teeth, and you're about to go out of that living room, and there's about to be your your beautiful wife and your dog, and you've got a life to live representing Jesus Christ, you know? And you got to take up that cross. You've got to be willing to go to, you've got to be willing, you know? And that's what he's calling for is full-on commitment, Right? Now, the paradox of discipleship, verse 25. When he says, follow me, that's pretty simple. Read the Bible, see what he does, do that, pray, get led by the Spirit, do it, you know? Now, for whoever desires to save his life will lose his life, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is like a paradox, right? Whoever desires, read it again, verse 25, to save his life will lose his life. Isn't that weird? I'm trying to save my life, but I'll lose my life. Um, But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. It's a paradox. It's like up is down. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Or what will man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I'm trying to make this quick because I'm watching the clock here. We all desire true, meaningful life because God created us with this vacuum inside of us. We're born with this like emptiness and we're born to be his worshipers. We're born to live his purposes. We're, as, as Youth for Christ slogan says, we're made for more. It's true. We're made to be his disciples, his followers, whether that's got us in persecution or in blessing or wherever it has us, you know, we're made to be his followers. And listen, we know something's missing until that's going on. We know it and we want life. And so here's what we do as humans is we go out and we try to make life happen. We say, you know what? I need to be loved, you know, because you do. You, every, every one of us needs to be loved. So we say, I need to be loved. And we go out and we try to find somebody and we try to date them and we try to fit them into this mold that we have and what we think, oh, does he check this box? He checks that box. Yeah, it's great. And, the, and we try to make it happen, right? And then we realize eventually this is not happening. And then we say, you know what? I need to feel secure. So then what we do is we go and get a job and we try to start saving up a bunch of money and we put it in the bank and we get investments, all this, and then we get cancer and then it drains all of our money and we go, oh, that's not, you know. And, and we keep trying to find our life we keep trying to make life happen in our own strength, in our, with our own brilliant intelligence. We're brilliant, 
you know, and we try to build towers. We try to build a life and it always falls apart. I heard an illustration one time about how these tribes, this tribe in Africa, and forgive me, you've heard this before, but it's just so fitting. This tribe, these, this particular tribe I was reading about, I can't remember their name, I'm sorry. Here's how they would trap monkeys, because they used to trap monkeys. And then they would take those monkeys and they would sell them, because people will pay a big, buck, you know, big bucks for money, a monkey. My dad used to have a monkey. It peed on everybody. Terrible experience. Flung feces at everybody. It's terrible. Stupid monkey. He literally used to hang out on the curtain rod by the door. So you'd walk out in the house, in the house, and here's this monkey on this curtain rod right here. And he would just, Rah! and you, what the heck, man? You ever seen that movie? Well, okay. So, the, so people pay for monkeys. So this tribe captures monkeys. And guess how they trap them? This is, this is genius, you know? This is jungle skills, jungle knowledge, right? They take a log however size, whatever, cut the log in half, bore a hole through the log that's just the same size as the monkey's fist. And monkeys like fruit. So what they would do is they've got this hole now in this log, they've taken it apart in half and they put a piece of fruit inside of it. So the monkey is coming along one day, I'm a monkey, and sees uh, fruit through this little hole. You guys heard this? Okay, and then the, so the monkey grabs in there and grabs a hold of that fruit and now... There's a problem. I can't get my hand out of this thing. And the trappers, they just come up and grab them. Because the monkey is too stupid to let go of this thing that it's hanging on to. Because all it wants is the fruit. All I want is this. I want this relationship so bad. It's getting in the way of the Lord. I want this career so bad. It's getting in the way of everything. I want to do this on Sunday. It's getting in the way of everything that God wants for your life. And you're a stupid monkey. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Man, he who looks, you want, to, you want to try to find your life? You're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find your life. You want to find true life? Take all your ambitions, hopes, dreams, and plans, talents, treasures, every single thing that you have in your life, your family, your breath that's in your lungs, and surrender every bit of it 100% to Jesus Christ, and you'll find life. You'll find life abundantly. And it's so true. I'm looking at living examples and testimonies of this in this room. People delivered from depression, anxieties, fears, problems, making havoc of their own lives, lives of others, hurting people. I've seen it time and time again. Jesus wants to give you true life. He doesn't want to hurt you. He doesn't want to take anything from you except for that which is hurting you. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I circled that word in my Bible as well. It. There's a missionary named Jim Elliott, and he's known for this quote that says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You know Jim Elliott? Missionary, South America, Ecuador, 
went to, went to minister to this tribe that's just known for killing people. They will kill everybody. So they go by airplane for five months and they drop little gifts to them back and forth and a helicopter, you know, giving some gifts. Eventually the tribes start, you know, they don't want to get on the ground. Eventually the tribes start putting gifts back in there, these tribesmen, right? Starts to go well. Five months later, they decide I'm going to take some missionaries. I'm going to go ahead and we're going to meet them. And they land and one of the tribesmen even takes a plane ride with them and things are going well. And so they say, well, let's go back there next time. And they come and there's a bunch of guys with spears and he kills every one of them. They kill every one of them. Every one of the missionaries slaughter them. Jim Elliott and all of his missionary team all had guns, all could have defended themselves, but they didn't want to because they didn't want to jeopardize this tribe that had never heard the gospel, receiving the gospel, maybe from the next group that was going to come. And that's the guy that says that you're no fool to give what you cannot keep, to gain that which you cannot lose. For what profit is it for a man if he just gives his life to money and possessions and worldly things, and he gets the end of his life, and God says, what now? What are you going to put in exchange for your soul at that point in your life? You're going to look back at your life and say, I had the wrong priorities, man. Verse 27 is the aim of discipleship. Then this is Jesus points him in the right direction right here. He says, for the son of man will come in his glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. At the second coming of Christ, the things you suffer now, God has promised that the things that you suffer now for his kingdom and for his sake, he notices every single one of them, every tear that you've cried to try to do the right thing, to try to do the Christ thing. He sees every tear you've cried, every sleepless night you've had, every palpitation your heart's experienced, every discouragement and disappointment. He's seen everything. And he will reward you. And verse 28 says, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. And for, to figure out what it means, we're just going to have to look at that next time. So, <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word here today. And Lord, by your spirit, I trust that you've spoken to hearts here. And so I pray that your spirit gently or forcefully, or whatever it is you want to do, I have no, it's your business, Lord. I just pray, just have your will and way in each heart here. And I pray for anybody, Father, maybe that's just kind of considered their priorities today, and maybe saw themselves in that monkey. Lord Jesus, would you just help them to give their life fully to you? And we do ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.